Welcome back to the Product Stories Podcast, hosted by Victor Peralnik. This podcast helps founders like yourself to find leaner ways to build successful SaaS products. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Today's guest is Rajesh Nerlikar, founder of Prodify. At Prodify, they help SaaS companies become more product-driven. They do coaching, advising, hiring. Uh, they work with clients on product management topics such as vision, strategy, KPIs, rope mapping. And so what we will learn from him today is how to prioritize our roadmap and how to decide how to spend our precious R&D budget to build what matters. Rajesh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Victor, for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what have you been up to the past years? What made you uh, go into product? Yeah, for sure. I guess the, you know the core answer there is just a, kind of a keen interest in the customer problem space and sort of like user experience. Honestly, um, super high level about my background. I'm an engineer turned MBA turned product guy. So worked in, in uh, as a software engineer at Accenture here in Austin, Texas, and part of their government practice. Found myself drawn a little bit more to why our clients were asking us to build the software that, that I was building than I was actually building. And so I stepped into a business analyst role and started working with clients directly to design the user experiences that they were using to serve their citizens. Uh, it was kind of like public assistance benefits, uh, food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid. So um, yeah, that was kind of my first step in and then uh, did an MBA got into the world of startups and then have, have spent a decent amount of time doing product at startups. And then about four years ago, um, left a, a role after a, a company I was at got acquired by a slightly larger company in the financial services space and um, have been doing product advisory and coaching work now for four years. So as you mentioned, Prodify uh, does exactly this. We've probably worked with about 80 companies in the last seven years. I've probably worked with about 35 now myself as a product advisor coach. And like, as you mentioned, more recently, a little bit more as a recruiter as well. Oh, nice. Um, I mean, that's that's very impressive because uh, I always say, you know, product managers come from various backgrounds. You seem to come from all of them, which is very good and very helpful. Now, how did you get into UX uh, specifically as well? Is that part of the interest? Yeah, so I think I've always thought about UX and I've been always drawn to the consumer product side of things. And so like, honestly, one of the things that drew me at Accenture was like trying to think about what does the sort of citizen experience look like as they're applying for these public assistance benefits and like, how do they find out about the application status and all those things. And so that was actually what triggered a desire to work more closely with clients. And then I was kind of so interested in consumer products that during my internship at business school, I went to go work at General Mills. I thought maybe I should go all the way into the CPG industry, which is, of course, very kind of consumer driven. Um, and I, I worked in consumer insights and honestly ended up missing the tech side of things of what I was doing before at Accenture. And so ended up uh, turning the offer down. But what it helped illuminate for me is like basically, you know, today we would call it product discovery or customer development and like just you know, conducting focus groups and standing in a grocery store and talking to people while they were shopping. Like those were things I really enjoyed because I, I immediately got to hear the voice of the user and the customer. And so it's been something that I've always thought about. And, you know, I appreciate the time because it helped like kind of like kickstart my interest in customer discovery and, you know, kind of brought some of those concepts over to the digital side of the things. What do you like more, uh, B2C or B2B? Uh, of course, there's also a customer, a user that the role is the same, but I, I guess it's also different. It is. I actually have basically specialized my entire career in B2B2C. And I like that because... Um 
I have the customer and the sales side of things and how do you figure out what the buyer is looking for. But then at the end of it all, it's like the job of the product is to change behavior at scale with some group of consumers. And so I've worked in like, hey, at Opower, it was like the utility companies bought our product and the energy reports were intended to encourage people to reduce their energy usage at home. But that was like hundreds of thousands of households across the utilities like coverage area um, at Hello Wallet. It was an employee benefit for financial wellness. So the HR kind of department usually bought it. And then we rolled out to employees and we helped them, you know, build savings, pay down debt, prepare for retirement. And so we had to think about the consumer experience as well for, for all the employees afterwards. And so I've enjoyed that. It's a good balancing act between the business side of things and why do why do why do B2B buyers buy things? And then like how do you change behavior once they do so at scale on the consumer side? Yeah, that's what I want to say. It's a it's a lot of stakeholders you got to manage. So right up your alley probably as a product manager, great challenge. I guess that 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 is the perfect segue to to uh, prioritization in the end. Why is that so important? Why shouldn't I just you know start building things, uh, throwing tasks at at developers? How does that impact the success of my business? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 foundational, and like you know, I think early stages of startups, it's fatal uh, if you get the prioritization wrong. And I know we're going to do a deep dive here in, in the prioritization, but I guess I think about this in sort of like two different ways. If you've ever read like you know Dan Olson's Lean Product Playbook, he introduces the problem space versus the solution space, and I think there's sort of like a set of tech and, and you know that prioritization is at the core of product management i, I use this like sort of abp acronym so, you know, a lot of salespeople say abc which means like always be closing as a salesperson for, for product folks i'm always thinking like abp right always be prioritizing and like you know so i think it's something that i think about a lot which is like where do i spend my time is that the right place is it meaningful to my clients and all those things and so i think there's the problem side of things which is like what are the problems we're solving for customers or we've started using more of a vernacular of like time but what are the outcomes that our clients seek or our customer seeks? And there's an infinite number of ways to answer that question. And I think a key question on the prioritization side is, what are the top two or three things that people are really trying to accomplish or what's keeping them up at night? And like, that's how you know that you're solving a problem that's meaningful, that they're willing to spend time or money or both with you and your product to help them achieve that outcome in their life. And, you know, of course, we're complex, we have personal lives, we have work lives. And so it's like important to understand that context on sort of like where this problem ranks on the list of things that, that someone is worried about or that they're really trying to achieve. So I think there's that problem safe space prioritization. And then there's sort of that solution space, which is like, even once you found a problem that, that they're trying to figure out or that they're trying to, to solve or an outcome that they're trying to achieve, the solution space prioritization is what is their existing solution and what's wrong with it that they would even consider switching away from what they're doing today. And sometimes that what they're doing today might be sort of nothing. And they're like, well, I've, I've never thought about how to solve this with like a digital product at all. Or, you know, it's often something, right? And I think if you get into the B2B space, you're often competing with like spreadsheets uh, in the SaaS world, or, you know, maybe there's another SaaS product that they're using that just isn't cutting it. And so I think there's a prioritizing solutions in a way that it's meaningful to the customer or the user and they would they would be excited to switch away from what they're doing today or once they're using your product like you know kind of zooming into like well what's the next set of problems that they have and some of those problems in the prioritization exercise might be 
what do we need to fix with the existing product versus like what are the, some of the big things strategically that we need to start doing where our current product like doesn't even support our, our customers and their needs uh, in, in certain areas where it, it makes sense for us to expand. So I think, like I said, the prioritization is foundational. I think, you know, if it's startups, if you prioritize the wrong problem or the solution's just not there, it's like fatal. Um, so I think that's kind of why prioritization is so important. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, the way that, that it's twofold, right? Um, firstly, what, what are the biggest problems? And secondly, what are the problems that just haven't been solved yet as well, or not in, in the way that we want to tackle it. So, um, I, I understand now prioritization is key. Got to make sure I, I solve the right problems. How do I go with that? What, what frameworks do exist? How does a product manager do that essentially? There is no shortage of frameworks for product folks. And uh, as we <laughs> you know, before we, we did this, we have our own framework. We call it vision-led product management. In that context, we think about prioritization in trying to achieve a vision for what you want your customer experience to look like over the course of a few years. And so we have three categories of, of sort of like product development, and we suggest a different prioritization techniques for each. One is innovation, which is like, what are the progress you're making towards the vision? Hopefully customers and employees and investors would consider your vision exciting and innovative, right? So there's innovation. There's iteration, which is what are the changes we might want to make to our, our existing product to like resolve usability issues or optimize conversion funnel rates, you know, adoption, feature adoption, and all those things. And then there's a third bucket that we call operation, which is basically the cost of modern SaaS platforms, right? Performance, security, uptime, bugs, internal tools, and what we realize is these are the three categories that most product teams are are sort of like grappling with at any given time. And so, you know, we had a prioritization framework for each. The with the first bucket, innovation, we kind of talk about, hey, like what you really need to do is sit down and think about a vision for what you want your customer journey to look like at some point in the future. And once you have that, you can work backwards and identify a strategic plan is effectively a multi-year roadmap for why you would sequence the things that you don't have today versus what you would need to have in order for that vision to be alive you know, come to life in a particular way. And once you've done that and gotten some alignment internally and with customers that that's the right sort of like multi-year roadmap, then you can start plucking things off the top of the list and saying, well, one of the first gaps we need to fill is this one. As an example, it might be like, well, we don't have the data that we need in order to do this next thing that we know we want to do later. So we need to build the product feature set that allows us to collect the data so we can go build the cool like features on top of it later. And so that's an example of how you might prioritize at like the strategic level of multi-year and sequencing, like why would you do this thing first versus second? I think a classic example of this that I just mentioned with the data one was LinkedIn, right? They created the, so, the professional social graph first to figure out who worked where and who worked with who and what do the connections look like before they decided they were going to go monetize it with, you know, recruiting and sales products and like charging money for, for those folks to go reach out to people once they knew where they worked and what their title was, right? Um, so that's an example sort of on the innovation side. On the iteration side, I think one of the most common prioritization frameworks I see out there is one called Rice. It was kind of made famous by Intercom, or at least they wrote the blog post on it. Uh, it has the R stands for reach. Impact is the I, confidence is the C, uh, and then E is the effort. And so what this does is you basically say, okay, we have a lot of ideas for what we can do with the product. Uh, let's score them on each of these four categories. So reach means how many customers or users would be impacted. Obviously, the higher that number is, the better it's going to score. Impact is like how big of a deal would it be if we actually like you know made this change to our product? 
Some changes are small. We talked about iterative changes. You may like, you know, move around a button or two or clarify how a feature works that helps more people to adopt it or use it. That's different from like launching a brand new product or like launching a new feature even, right? The impact is probably a little bit different. Confidence is like, how sure are we that this is actually the right thing? And I think that this comes from a few different sources. I typically break it down into three. One is quantitative. Can we look at the behavior of our users as an example and identify that this would be meaningful? And, you know, we see that they're dropping off at this point in the conversion funnel. If we built, you know, something better here, we can increase this from 20% to 40%. And that's meaningful to our business for these reasons, right? So there's quantitative, there's qualitative, which is we've talked to a lot of folks and sort of anecdotally, we've heard either directly from customers, directly from users, or through our sales team, through our customer success team, our client services team, that these are the issues that clients or customers are complaining about inside of the product. And then I think in some instances, the competitive uh, source is another place where confidence comes from, which is that you look at how your competitor's product works. And the reason sometimes you may say we should prioritize working on something or that we're confident that this is the right thing to build is because you realize that your customers themselves now consider the way that your competitor's product works to be like standard or default. And they have an expectation that all products inside of your category, like kind of do X or Y. And if you don't, then it's almost like a, you got to check the box to keep, you know, stay in the game almost. Right. And so I think that's for confidence. And then the whole framework kind of rice framework divides by effort. And so what this means is you think about how, how much time would it take to, to build this thing? And so the the one caveat I'll just say about rice is that if you look at the math, when you divide by effort, what this means is you're really just going to identify all the quick wins. It's pretty rare that rice is ever going to spit out something that's going to take you 18 months to build, because if you stack rank it with something that's going to take one month, that's always going to end up at the top because the denominator is there. So I think you just have to be cautious. This is why we typically recommend using rice as a part of the iterative category of work, which is like, what are some of the quick wins or the small changes that could have a meaningful impact? And you want to have some balance of those during the course of time. And then that last bucket was operational. And I think rice is probably a frame right there. I think you might look at the KPIs, which is you might have an uptime uh, SLA even with some customers, 99.9% uptime. You might have a performance one, which is like, hey, the API will return a response within like one millisecond in 99% of the cases or something. Uh, you might have some security requirements or you might measure risk both qualitatively and quantitatively, especially if you work in a regulated environment. And so you might look at those KPIs and say, what are the things we need to do to like really move the needle on these KPIs? And I think gets a little bit into sort of outcome-driven prioritization, which I'll talk about in a minute, but uh, I'll pause there to see uh, if there's any questions about how we recommend different prioritization techniques for innovation, iteration, and operation. That makes a lot of sense, actually. So we, we basically looked at rice, right, which is the quick wins, because I, I check uh, what's the opportunity that I have divided by how much effort does it take versus, which is short-term, which identifies, uh, you know, low-hanging fruits versus your vision-led approach, which which basically gives the multi-year outline towards a certain state. So I, I think here it would be great to explain what is a future customer journey, because I think that plays a big part of that. 
let me back up and provide a little bit of context on why we even created a framework that we called vision-led product management in the first place. Like I said, uh, my co-founder Ben and I um, have worked in mostly startups for for like decades, basically, if you kind of combine all our experience. And then in the last seven years, as I mentioned, we've probably worked with about 80 companies. And during that time, we started identifying some patterns and trends and some commonalities of the things that companies were coming to us with in terms of the product problems or challenges they were facing. And we realized that for a lot of them, they they had sort of found some early product market fit. So they had a handful, you know, they had a handful of customers. The product was doing relatively well. And one of the big questions that comes up there is like, especially as you think about, you know, fundraising and telling the story about what can we do if we were going to grow faster is wow, there's like three or four viable pathways forward. And it's not exactly clear which one is the right one to sort of pursue because all of them you can make an art, a case for, right? And so again, it comes into a prioritization problem, which is like, which of these are most meaningful to solve that's going to help grow the business and you know create investor returns and create insane customer value in the world and those types of things. And so... Um, we realized that there's a, you know, the framework kind of includes some prioritization techniques to identify who are you building your product for and what problems or outcomes are you trying to deliver for them and how might you stack rank those against each other to identify like, hey, this product opportunity space looks drastically bigger than this other one for these reasons, right? And therefore, it's probably worth us thinking about and pursuing, maybe even pursuing it, right? But in order to say, where is all this going? I think there's a storytelling element of like, hey, uh, we do have a product vision. And I think that vision is so important for a few reasons, right? One is with investors, you got to tell a story of like, where's our product headed? Why is it exciting? Why is it innovative? Why is it game changing? How could this be the next billion dollar company, right? For customers, I think it's really important, especially if you sell into the B2B space, especially, uh, you know, with enterprise clients, they're not just buying today's product, they're signing like a three year deal with you. And so they're buying today's product plus the direction of where you're headed. If you never explain where you're headed, then this is where the sort of like random customer feature request starts becoming a problem. Because if it's if it's not in line with where you were thinking about taking the, the product, then it creates a lot of tension internally between, you know, the customer facing teams and the product development teams, right, is that there's no alignment. And then you feel like you're just constantly responding to, to feedback that that's irrelevant to where you're trying to take the product. And so, you know, we talk about this future customer journey as an artifact that that is a way to express the product vision. It's not just a, a single statement that says, we're going to be the number one company in this product space or this market. And, and you know, um, and it's not like a bulleted list of features which taken out of context wouldn't mean anything to a given like, you know, employee who you're trying to inspire with your vision or a customer who you're trying to like explain the direction. So what we think of is that it, it should be a customer-centric artifact that explains how a customer's life is going to be better uh, in some future state, right? Typically, a vision, we, we usually start with three or four years into the future for, for most companies. And so, um, you know, we, there's a lot of different ways to express that vision. We have a, a, a preference for a couple of formats that we found to be extremely powerful. One is a comic strip that explains what the customer journey looks like. And that journey isn't just... Hey, from the time that you log into the product to the time that you log out, this is what it's going to look like. It's very holistic and it thinks about what was the triggering moment where a customer or a prospect said, man, my existing product solution isn't working well to help me achieve this outcome. Then it moves into discovery, which is like, how do they find out about your product? Evaluation, what's going on in their head as they learn more about your product? What are the checkboxes they're trying to check? What are the criteria that they're using to decide whether your product is better than something else that they've used or that they're considering using? It moves into a trial phase, which isn't just like 
a free trial, like in a consumer app or something that you download from the app store, but also like, Hey, I'm going to kick the tires a little bit. We're going to do proof of concept and run it for a few months or a few quarters, test it out with a few employees in the B2B context, then moving into like kind of ongoing engagement or, you know, retention, just like just normal product usage. Once you've proven that it is valuable and that the journey should also identify, like sort of how do you retain customers at a moment where, uh, you know, they have a choice to, to walk away from the product uh, in the B2B context. This would be the renewal conversation, right? Hey, it's been a year or two years. Do you want to like re-up with us in the consumer space? It might also just be like, hey, you know, you stop paying for our product or, you know, you're thinking about you canceling. Uh, do you want to stay with us and why? And thinking about what is the experience that a customer is going to have at those moments. And so that's the, the sort of spirit behind the vision led framework and why we choose to express that vision in a way that's very customer centric. The other benefit is that it, it aligns, it, it sort of emphasizes the customer centricity. So as you take the, the vision around, start talking to sales and marketing and engineering, you're putting the customer at the center of all the discussions and it sort of emphasizes that customer centricity. That's a very valid point uh, because how, how should I, as a product manager or also the founder, as the person in charge, what should I do with, with, other feedback, right? You mentioned marketing, you mentioned sales. If I'm not the founder, but I'm 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 the product manager, what I what should I do with the founder's direct input? Or if I'm the founder, how should I even even think about my own ideas for for the product? Yeah, well, you know, in the framework, as you might imagine, we get a little bit into the process side of things and we talk about evaluating the ideas that make up your vision and how do you make sure that the direction you're headed is actually a, the right direction, right? So I think, like I said, the, I think qualitative research is, is sort of a technique that isn't used as often, uh, but that we recommend, which is like, how do you go talk to your customers, your prospects, your advisory board, whatever it might be to make sure that the direction you're headed is in fact exciting. And as a founder, I think you have to get alignment. You know, we were talking about the B2B2C business model and how you've got the buyer and then you've got the consumer. And it's like, it is a lot of stakeholders and you have to prioritize your time and, and your energy against each of those personas. Same thing as a founder, right? You've got your marketing team, the sales team, uh, the sales team, like their livelihood depends on them building the right product that they can actually sell in the market. That's going to win. And that's going to like help them pay their, you know, pay their bills every month. And because and, their paycheck is dependent on it. Similar for marketing. How do you make sure that they know how to position and talk about the product in a way that's meaningful to the, the actual market or the, the buyers out there? Right. So I think that, that the, the, what I'll say about the framework is, you know, we have like kind of five big components of the framework. Each one, it sort of like there's a recommended artifact that produces like, hey, there, there's something tangible that the team can react to. And actually, the specific artifact doesn't matter that much. The point that is down on paper is what's most important, because if you can't get that alignment internally, and sometimes it happens like verbally, you know, you might just think about how, oh, and we've actually met a lot of founders where they're like, no, everyone at my company knows what the vision is. We talk about it every single all hands meeting, but talking about it and having it written down are two very different things, right? The intent of the vision should be that, you know, someone can reference it periodically and say, oh, I'm about to make a decision. Is this decision going to take us closer to that vision or further away? And if it's just something that's verbally communicated, what we found is if you, you know, even at a small company with 15 people, you might end up with 15 different versions of what that vision means to them if it's only verbally communicated. And so the, the intent behind the framework is to drive alignment on the vision so that you can make sure that everyone's rowing 
in the same direction and that everyone understands where we're headed and why it's the right direction, why it's good for the customers, why it's good for the business and all those things. And so I think there is some of that feedback that needs to, to get there. And I think at the product manager level, it's a little bit harder because you know you may not be able to influence that direction as much, but I think you can apply some of these concepts even at the feature level, which is like, hey, this is what we think this feature is going to look like and by the time we're done in a year or so. Uh, let me explain to you why it should be exciting and what success looks like, what the metrics are going to be that we'll use to measure the, the value of this product or this feature. Um, and let me explain, sort of work backwards from an end state and talk about how we're going to slice this into like, you know, sprint sized chunks and start building this feature and re- hopefully releasing it and putting it into the hands of users and getting feedback along the way to verify uh, or, or sort of evaluate whether we're headed down the right path, you know. That's very valuable. That makes perfect sense. How does that even differ potentially before or after product market fit? Is, is there a big difference? Do I have more or less certainty on different things? Or do I even apply different techniques to get there? I, I guess the, the most important thing when I'm before product market fit is obviously to get to product market fit. And how does that change after? It definitely changes how you think about prioritization in particular. And like you said, before you found it, there's nothing else that matters. In fact, what we typically talk about with our vision-led framework is like it kind of is irrelevant until you found product market fit. Nobody cares about your vision. What they care about is, does your product solve a problem for me today, right now? And that's how you find that product market fit. And most of those first few, whatever, months or quarters or years uh, for early product, a new product is spent iterating on feedback from different customers. And you may cast a wide net. I'd say this is a pretty common technique and it, it, you know it's probably a reasonable one. Hey, I don't know. Maybe there's a handful of different verticals or sort of markets we could try to sell this product into. Maybe we should try a bunch of them simultaneously and figure out, I call it the product path of least resistance as an electrical engineer, right? Where are we seeing the best traction where people are interested in what we're doing? They're using it. They're willing to pay. And like, maybe there's some differences in how different markets or personas think about buyer personas, think about our product. And I want to find out where that is. And I might have some hypotheses, but I need to, I'm constantly learning as we iterate towards product market fit. And once you find some of those early adopters, then you might spend a lot of time iterating to get their feedback. And hopefully what you're doing during that time is also saying, well, what about that sort of early majority or the next wave of of people who might want to buy inside of this market? They don't look exactly like these early adopters who might be much more willing to, you know, try something out or be willing to put up with some bugs and some like weird usability issues as an alpha tester almost, right? But could I sell this product into the rest of the market? And if, if so, what changes might I need to make and be thinking about is this actually scalable, right? Have we found product market fit in one just with these early adopters or, or you know, is there a broader market and audience beyond them that would actually buy this product? And I think this is an interesting thing, as you might imagine. We talk about product market fit a lot with our clients. We actually do these monthly workshops where we pull all our clients together and we talk about different topics. Um, product market fit, as you might imagine, is an annual topic comes up for this, coming up for the last three or four years. And uh, I think maybe a month or two ago, we did the, the sort of like 2021 uh, version of this. And my key takeaway was that you know, you kind of have to find product market fit multiple times because you might, you might, you might find that fit with the early adopters, but as you try to take that to that next wave of people inside of the market, they might have different evaluation criteria or price sensitivities, or they may not care about certain features that the early adopters did. And so it's kind of this never ending cycle, but all of it's about finding scalability, which is identifying the things that matter to certain groups of people and making sure the product is just better than everything else out there uh, that they've seen, right? And that you might have to go through this many times. And the prioritization techniques may vary depending on where you are in that sort of life cycle. That's very smart, actually. Yeah. And then so if I 
have my early adopters who also oftentimes maybe probably know me, know myself, or know a lot of background or are in a community that depends how you reach your early adopters, right? But they may, you probably may find that quicker than with totally different customers who've never heard of you where you have bigger switching costs. It's probably one of these hypotheses I'd, I'd have here. Yeah, hundred percent. And like I said, look, idea you know, this is really hard to do, but ideally while you're building for those early adopters and trying to figure out what their feedback is, that you're also verifying or sort of like, you know, evaluating whether that next wave of customers would actually find value in the exact same product today, or do you need to make some changes to it in order for it to be valuable or, or meaningful for them? Obviously, all of this is in the vein of scalability, which is ideally they, that next wave of, of target audience or adopters would say, yes, that product that you already have today is exactly the thing that I would want to buy too. And then now you now you're now you're really circling that product market fit, and you can sort of like able to create that scalable hockey stick type growth because the same product can be used uh, to create value for them and therefore they're willing to buy and pay for it perfect perfect and now obviously most most people listening have i I guess everybody listening i'd assume i'd hope has uh is is using some sort of uh project management software rather jira uh trello something like that you can prioritize within jira and trello jira jira has a a roadmap e-ish kind of view where you can drag and drop things around that's not really so helpful for for the prioritization techniques we're we're talking about uh, here. It's quite limited. Do you recommend any product management software out there specifically, or or what do you use? So I think that the. So this is a quick answer is I personally tend to come back to spreadsheets and decks. And what I find with some of my clients is that they're in similar boats. And I think there's been some great advances in product management tools and, and sort of like products in the last few years. Um, uh, you know, companies like Product Board and, and you know, uh, Atlassian and, and uh, Notion and things like that are coming up with products, Airtable even, right? That, that can be used by product teams to help, you know, manage their work. But I think that the, the prioritization side, you know, I talk to my clients a lot about the art and the science of, of product management. And I think that there's a, you know, I see a lot of these of like sort of the data-driven product camp saying, well, everything should be sort of quantifiable and I need to be able to like have this scorecard that sort of has different weights and it spits out an answer. But it's like, you would never just take the answer that the spreadsheet spits out and say, okay, well, the spreadsheet said we should do, these are the top three things we should do. Um, You always layer that on with a little bit of a judgment call of like, do I agree with these things? Are they naturally what I would have expected? And if so, do I, you know, has, is there anything insightful about the data that sort of like help surprise me, impact reach, you know, revenue implications, whatever it might be. And then there's uh, a qualitative side, which is like, do I agree? Does it, based on what I know in my sort of like gut, do I think that this is actually the highest priority thing, the most valuable thing that we should have, you know, design engineering working on right now? Uh, is it solving a customer problem that's burning and urgent? Uh, or is it just like a modest like tweak, you know? And so I think that there's sort of this balancing act. So I have, I sort of like go back and forth. I think that some tools are, are good at this. And I think if nothing else, they create a way to, to, to organize information and ideas. And that's a good thing. What I've seen some teams struggle with though, is getting adoption across even one across the product team that every product manager agrees that this is actually better than, than their spreadsheets or their Google docs or whatever it is that they're using. And then two, 
you know, a lot of the value comes when your stakeholders also look at the tool. And I think one of the challenges I've seen with like, as an example with Jira is like, very few executives have access to Jira or know how to use it. And so you end up having to create like this, you know, deck or a slide outside of Jira that explains the roadmap. And now you have two things that, that are probably not synced up. And then there's a question of like, where do I go? And I want to find the latest roadmap really is probably in Jira, but I don't know how to get into Jira or I don't remember what, that Jira exists and stuff. So, you know, and it's not a knock against Jira. I think a lot of product tools like this have this challenge, which is why I think a lot of teams fall back on the tools that the entire company has access to. And so I think collaboration is kind of like one of these challenges for, for product management tools. And I know that a lot of collaborative features have been built to share, you know, snippets of roadmaps or and aha and the likes probably have a lot of those, those feature sets, but yeah, that's what I use. And so like, you know, with our framework, we've created a bunch of templates uh, in Google Sheets that like help you create uh, the the balancing act between like innovation and iteration and operations. And like th- there are some scorecards, and then there's a handful of prompting questions we have after the scorecard. It's like put out an answer, and and we typically do like the sort of like now soon later kind of template for for products. Uh, and I know we'll we'll probably talk about outcome oriented roadmaps too. But I think that those are uh, it's a powerful trend we're seeing. Uh, and I think if you can combine those two, that, that's powerful. Yep, yep. And uh, you're right about that. The smallest common denominator within a bigger organization is usually Word, Excel, sent via email. But yeah, the things we, we have to live with. Um, yeah, you just mentioned the outcome oriented product roadmap. Why don't you say a bit about that? Yeah, sure. I would say that there that this is like, you know, obviously um, kind of thinking about product, there's a lot of trends. And I would say this is like one of this in my mind, this outcome oriented product roadmap is like cutting edge. Uh, very few of the teams we're working with have started adopting this. The big transition is uh, we talk about outcome-oriented roadmaps as opposed to output-oriented roadmaps. And I think the output-oriented roadmap is focused on feature delivery and timelines. And it's like, you know, you, you some you know, a lot of teams still use what I call the sort of like Gantt chart style roadmap, which kind of looks like a project plan. It's got like some timeline across the top. It's got some detailed tasks of things that are going to be built. And maybe there's a little star next to different like feature releases or product releases. And those are of course necessary and relevant and needed in order to communicate what is changing about the product and when. However, it, the format itself, and I think the visualization creates such an emphasis on the timeline that a lot of product development teams get caught up in this sort of like world where the success of their job is basically dependent on whether they stuck to the timeline that they created. Well, in reality, that that project plan that looks like a project plan was probably never created like, you know, the way that a, I don't know, like a home construction company might create a project plan for building a house where they know exactly what needs to happen because it's pretty similar to build, you know, the first house is pretty similar to building the second house, right? You've got, you know, the structure, electrical, plumbing, like walls, roofs, windows, uh, you know, all that stuff. It's like, it's pretty common. Like one house is pretty close to another. That's not the case necessarily with software, right? Every feature could be different and requires different infrastructure on the technology side. You might need to like revamp the architecture, all those things, right? And so those estimates are often just that. They were estimates and they're often done in a, you know an hour or two or three hours just putting like t-shirt sizes on there. But then they're presented as if they were like very concrete timelines. And so I think what this has created is, is a world where product management in particular is, you know, what I, one of the implications of this is I think 
trust has eroded very quickly at organizations between product and their stakeholders when every quarter they have to stand up there and say, well, this we're delayed here, we're delayed here, we're delayed here. And it was because that really the estimates were off and we learned something new. And you know, it's in some ways you'd say that that's a good thing, right? Isn't the point of, of agile product development to constantly be learning and iterating and sort of adjusting um, and so the, there's a trend now to move to these outcome-oriented roadmaps. And I'd say the, 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 my interpretation and how we talk to our clients about using this is that the first thing you need to do is identify what outcomes, and hopefully they're quantifiable outcomes, is the product intended to move. And of course, there's the sort of financial ones, right? So every product probably has something with a dollar sign in front of it that this is some KPI related to revenue or cost savings or whatever. That That's important. And I think it's really good to, to have that as a starting point. You get the business layer on top of the sort of product layer, which is like, how does the software development work actually impact the business? Is it helping grow top line revenue by adding new clients? Is it expanding with existing clients? Are we trying to reduce churn? And like even those three things in and of itself can be the outcomes you're trying to drive towards. Right, But I think another variation of this might be thinking about what are the outcomes a customer is trying to achieve and how does our roadmap relate to those, right? Because one of the things we talk about in our framework is identifying key outcomes for a customer before you identify the key outcome for your business. Every company has some like business level KPIs, uh, financial ones, right? But Create, solving, creating value for your customers is actually the leading indicator of business value, right? As long as you've got a reasonable pricing and packaging-like plan, you should be able to capture some of the value you're creating for customers and, and sort of like realize it in the form of like revenue and, and profits for your business. And so one of the things we push clients on is thinking about how much you orient a roadmap that sort of talks about what outcomes your customer is trying to achieve, whether, you know, you are B2B product that actually helps them grow top-line revenue. And so like, you know, is there a world where you actually measure whether they're you know achieving growth or not and and maybe there's a feature set that you build to sort of help track or, or increase their revenue maybe you exist to help them you know reach regulatory compliance and there's some way to track whether they're compliant or what percentage of the time they're compliant or how much work they have left to do to be more compliant maybe you save them money and so you need to track like employee efficiency and those types of things and the consumer facing side it's a little bit more straightforward because you can you know probably ask uh, directly for for what value or what outcome they're trying to, to seek and quantify it. Um, and the general idea is once you've aligned on those outcomes, then imagine for a second a world where the swim lanes on the roadmap become those outcomes. And the point is, if the columns in a roadmap are typically timelines, and I think rather than having sort of like very specific dates, I think now, soon, later is gets at the point of, of sort of the intent of a roadmap, which is to communicate priorities relative to each other, even if the specific dates aren't clear. Now you could have sort of this swim lanes that say, here's the outcome that we're trying to drive. Here's what we're working on now that we feel is going to move the needle the fastest on this outcome. And it creates a real forcing function for the product team to rationalize why the work they're doing is actually going to move the needle on some metric that's important to the business or customers or ideally both, right? And this is sort of the trend towards outcome-oriented roadmaps that, that we're seeing. And again, like I said, I think this is still pretty early early days in terms of adoption for product teams taking this on but that's kind of the theory behind them awesome awesome this is really helpful and so now if uh, anybody listening wants to um have this discussion about the the more cutting edge approaches in product management with you directly what do you guys do at prodify exactly to help software companies and maybe who's who's the right fit here to talk to you yeah, for sure. So there's kind of three personas that we, we typically serve. Uh, one is startup founders and entrepreneurs. And uh, 
there, I think some of the things that we're typically helping with is like how to, how to, there's a product strategy side, which is like what makes, help me make some decisions on where to take the product. Uh, what market should we go after? We found some initial traction here. We could go, you know, like we talked about, uh, setting, you know, a few different directions. How do we decide which one is right and how do we prioritize what markets to go after next? And I think this is where some of the vision led framework could be helpful in sort of synthesizing the directions and the personas, um, and, and all those things. And so that's one aspect. There's a product team development side of things. And so a lot, one of the, the major things is, should I make my first product hire? And that's actually one of the most sort of like common ways where we're helping on the recruiting side is helping them decide, do I need a product executive? Typically we recommend having more of a senior PM level person who's going to join to help execute on the roadmap, knowing that founders are probably not yet willing to, to kind of like give up the product vision and strategy and rightfully so because they're the storytellers and, and sort of the arbiters of, of all of that with investors and they're probably still in the sales cycle and all those things, right? So um, that's another big one. Sometimes they come to us and we're looking for a little bit more structure on the on the sort of like product development side of things. And we think about, I, the way I think about product operations is kind of like, hey, how do I ideas turn into software releases and it gets into prioritization and tools and process and org structure and a handful of those things. Um, so th those are another area. Uh, another group of folks that we help are product executives. And I'd say a classic one is actually people who are stepping into the VP product role for the first time at a startup. So series A, series B is usually where this starts happening and they start hiring VPs. And um, there we do kind of more executive coaching. So we kind of help serve as a sounding board for like major product decisions or thinking about how to structure the team, maybe helping a little bit with hiring, looking at resumes and thinking about the profile of product person you might need, maybe looking at the strengths and weaknesses and sort of like overall diversity of team in terms of like, you know, thought thought process and sort of like natural, um, you know, personalities and making sure that there's some good like balance uh, across the team. And then a, a third uh, group that we serve is product team leads. Uh, so kind of think a, a director, a group product manager level there, it's a little bit kind of still more on the coaching side of things and helping them become product leaders, uh, helping them mentor their, their product managers, think about the execution of how product is done at their organization. Uh, so it touches probably a little bit more tactically into the product operation side of things. But yeah, those are kind of the three big things that we help with. And so it's like, you know, product vision, strategy, product team development, coaching, hiring, uh, and product operations, kind of like how do ideas turn into software releases. All across the product board. Awesome. Do you have any resources, anything more about prioritization, vision setting, rope mapping that I can send people to? Yeah, for sure. So on our site, Partify.group, we have a whole section uh, dedicated to resources. One of the things we offer to our clients is what we call the Partify uh, library. It's, a, you know, basically a Google Drive folder full of like worksheets, templates, real world examples of product artifacts. And we have a lot of step-by-step -step guides there to help people make some of these product decisions or, or get down their product uh, vision or learn how to do customer discovery interviews and those types of things. And so we've exposed a handful of those through our website. Uh, there's a resources tab at the top of the site, you can find uh, access to the library. Um, and then I think I might have sent you a link to an article that I found helpful on the prioritization techniques. It's probably a few years old, but every time I look back on it, I'm like, well, I think most of these still apply. And it's like, uh, it used to be called Folding Burritos. I think they've rebranded to, to career.pm. And so it's a, it basically, it's kind of a cool visual. It's the periodic table of product prioritization techniques. Uh, and I think they've kind of oriented around sort of how qualitative versus quantitative it is and how sort of internally focused versus externally focused it is. And I think they have like 20 different prioritization techniques. So it's kind of a good article to get the kind of like high level 50,000 foot view of different prioritization techniques that exist out there. And I, like I said, you know, we picked some very specific ones as a part of the vision led framework, which you can see about on our site, but uh, this, this article and visual might be helpful just to get kind of a high level overview. 
Yeah, they've almost prioritized prioritization techniques. Um, no, it's 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 very complete. It's a great article. We're going to link it in the show notes. Rajesh, last one. Uh, so your site is Prodify.group, and where can people find you uh, personally? Yeah, me personally, LinkedIn is probably the best place. Uh, I'm active there. Um, so yeah, just uh, search uh, Rajesh and Prodify, and you should be able to find me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been super, super helpful. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Victor. I love talking about prioritization because it sits at the heart of product management. So, uh, really <laughs> Awesome, thank you. You bet. This show is brought to you by TrustShoring, your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from Eastern Europe. We recruit full-time developers, match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements, or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly, you benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one guidance all the way, so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to TrustShoring.com.